Hi, everybody, and welcome to RQM Plus Live number 53, uh, which just like our show two weeks ago is a part two of a previous episode. Uh, our last show on PSERS was a record breaker in terms of attendance and probably questions asked as well. Uh, so we thought it deserved a follow up. My name is Stephen Bernacki, Marketing Principal at RQM Plus, and I'm going to briskly introduce RQM Plus and our panelists before we dive in. Um, RQM Plus is the largest international provider of regulatory quality and clinical consulting services for medical device and diagnostics manufacturers. And this is RQM Plus Live, our bi-weekly show that gives you access to our experts who answer your questions about timely industry topics and challenges. Uh, please type your questions if you have them today into the questions area uh, in the webinar interface and click submit. All right, so speaking of today's panel, uh, we first have Amy Smirthwaite, Senior Vice President of Intelligence and Innovation. Amy has a PhD, and she's been a leading figure and author on several MDCG guidance documents, and she's also the formal global head of clinical compliance at BSI. Next is Carlos Galamba, Vice President of IVD Intelligence and Innovation. Carlos joined RQM Plus in September 2021 after seven years at BSI, where he was responsible for managing, coaching, and developing a global team of IVD technical experts in his role as technical team manager. Third is Nancy Morrison, Executive Director of Regulatory and Quality Consulting Services. Nancy has a RAC certifications for the US and EU. Uh, she leads our MDR and IBDR leadership councils, and she has over 30 years of experience in regulatory leadership and management roles. Lastly, a very special moderator today who will be pulling double duty since she knows the topic so well too, is Celeste Maxim, Chief of Staff for Clinical and Post-Market Services. Celeste has extensive experience with clinical studies and post-market surveillance, and at RQM Plus, her focus is on developing strategies to meet the MDR requirements for clinical and post-market surveillance compliance documentation. So that's it for the intros. Celeste, you are welcome to get started. Awesome. Thank you so much, Steve. So thank you, everyone, for all the questions that were submitted on the first live show on PSERS. We're excited for more today, so please enter them into the Q&A box. Uh, let's jump right in to the discussion by starting with audience questions that we didn't get to from the last show, and then we'll move on to the new ones coming in for today. Uh, so remember, these are direct audience questions, um, and really excited to share our answers with you. So maybe, Amy, you can start us off with this one, uh, but what are the first pieces due for EUMDR Class 3, 2B, and Class 2A devices? Right, so if they're not certified under the MDR, if they were not certified before the, um, the, the date of application, then you, you basically it's one year after for the class 2B and the class 3. So if it's MDD certified, you would be, do the first one to be due one year after, which would be the 26th of May this year. So they're due next month. Obviously, they'd be due sooner if you got your MDR certification before then. And for the two A's, it's essentially the same rules apply, but it's two years. So the first two A's, presuming that they're still under their MDD certificate, will be a year and a month from now. Yeah. And just, just a parallel to that, Amy. So if you think of IVDs, so the requirements are similar. So as we've discussed in our last show, um, PSURs are required for uh, IVDs in classes uh, C and D devices. So when I was at BSI, for example, I've seen a lot of manufacturers submitting PSURs together with their first um, IVDR applications. 
but in reality that wasn't required uh, and that's because the data collection period uh, had not been conducted under the IVDR certification and therefore notified bodies could not reasonably expect PSURs to be made available um, at initial certification. Say, saying that, that were, they were often a useful resource for, for notified bodies because we used to dig into that, that data because it had quite good uh, post-market data that would support uh, certification for these devices. But that's correct. So if, even for IVDs, so if, for IVDs, we've only got one year, the one year cycle for both classes uh, C and D on, on, on PSERS. And they will start from, so for, there's two cases so for legacy devices, for devices that were only IVDD um, certified and they haven't met the date of application yet. So they, the, 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 the data collection period only starts from the date of application of the IVDR, which is May 2022. If a manufacturer achieved IVDR certification before the date of application, then the PSUR is due one year after their IVDR certificate has been issued. Um, so that's just the parallel for, for IVDs. Perfect. Thank you, Carlos. And we're actually already receiving audience questions, so we might mix it up a little bit if that's okay. <laughs> um, Nancy, maybe you can lead with this one. Um, if a device requiring a PSER has accessory items that are class one, so they would require a PMS report, is it permissible to group the class one device in the PSER rather than completing a separate PMS report for that accessory device? That's a good question, and I'm going to punch. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> typically you would do your system, right, in a single PCER or in a single CER, right? Because it makes sense to do everything like that. But I don't know the answer to that question, if I can, in the PCER. I think it's probably okay. That would be my gut reaction to it. Because as long as you're meeting the requirements of the regulation, it doesn't strictly matter where you document something. And also for a class one device, the only person who's really going to be looking, assuming it's not measuring sterile reusable surgical instrument, the only person who's going to be looking at it will be a QMS auditor. So the QMS auditor is just going to want to see, is there a PMS report? And if the PMS report meets the requirements of the regulation, they're not going to raise that as a finding, you know, in, from a quality system 1345 perspective. Carlos, anything on your... We're just guessing. Yeah. I think, yeah, to be honest, I think it's, I'm just guessing as well. And because it was an MDR specific question, I, you know, I'm not sure I can add a lot. I think it would, yeah. It's about like grouping devices and what's what's more efficient to do one piecer with this grouped products or to separate them and you have to still do the annual piecer. And for this one PMS report, it's obviously not near as frequent. Right, so it's also about how do you streamline the portfolio overall. But I guess also it depends on how you're collecting your data. And if you collect your data in a way that sort of minimizes the burden on you, then you can just kind of dump it. I don't want to use the word dump, <laughs> dump it into your PSER, and then you're sort of killing two birds with one stone rather than having to do two separate reports. But it's just going to depend on how you organize that data collection. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Yeah, but um, so, I, I, I'd agree okay. just, just to add Celeste. I think even for, for IVDs, it makes sense a lot of times to group things into families if uh, if that's appropriate. Because you've got a lot of a lot of the IVDs work in combination. So you've got systems, you've got IVD assays that work with a control, a calibrator, and in a lot of those cases, it just makes sense to have uh, combined P, PSARs. Um, so yeah, I think that's definitely a valid approach, but it, it takes a lot of planning. Absolutely. Okay, thank you. That's very... Um, 
good, great answer, I think. Um, so then more audience questions. Uh, do all actions from PMS activities need to be closed before the PCER can be signed off? What is I would not anticipate that, right? Because some of those actions may take a while. If you go back to design activities or you issue a corrective action or a preventative action based on the data, I think the the expectation is it's a continuous cycle that you're using that data to make changes and to make improvements. So it may still be open. Obviously, if you have a public health risk, that's a different situation where people might get injured. Um, but no, you know, I think the expectation more is that it's ongoing and that you're continuing to update as you go based on what you learn from that report. Yeah, and also just to add as well, Nancy. So it wouldn't be acceptable because the the the, the PSUR has got defined periods for reporting. So it needs to be on an annual basis or uh, every two to two years for certain devices. So for it is just on an annual basis. So you wouldn't be necessarily waiting for your your campus to be closed before um, submitting the PSUR because it's a legal requirement that it needs to be submitted within the time frame. And as you say, um, some of those actions will take a lot longer to complete. But it, what's important is that the PSUR is submitted within the established time frames in the in the regulation. Um, so here's an audience question that comes with a follow-up. What constitutes PCER submission? Upload to the notified body or upload to Udemed? Or is it, this, this is the second part, um, ready for inspection during on-site inspection? So for, for, for IVDs, it's, it's both because you've got for class Ds. So once Udemed is functional, they will need to submit the PSURs to Udemed. So that, that's one of them. And then the notified body validates that PSUR from off Udemed. But then for class C devices, they just need to be make, made available to notified bodies. And in a lot of the cases, that's going to happen over the annual surveillance visits that uh, um, uh, uh, manufacturer will receive over the certificate cycle. Yeah, and the same criteria applies to MDR as well. So the higher risk classification devices have to um, be submitted to Udemed. The other devices are like probably via the um, during the, the surveillance audits. So it depends on the risk class of the device. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Um, here's here's a longer question. Maybe Nancy can start us off with this answer. Um, what level of production information should be included in the PCER? So ISO 14971 requires collecting production information and monitoring the production process, but the MDCG draft guidance for PCER did not include this type of section. It, to me, right, what I like to focus on are those things that have an impact on the, the device performance of their device safety. So if you made a, a significant change or if you had a manufacturing failure that resulted in complaints so that you're tying it together along with your other post-market data and making sure it, you don't want to put every time I changed a motor in manufacturing, you don't, that's too much, that's overkill and, and you'll burden yourself trying to explain every one of those changes that should just be handled in your regular quality system documentation. Um, but if it was a significant, if you moved facilities, right, that could impact the quality of the product, if you had a failure that resulted in complaints or adverse events, those are the types of activities I would list. Okay, very helpful. 
Um, so the audience questions keep coming. Um, does does PCER <laughs> need to be presented during management review for actions to be taken, such as update to clinical evaluation report, risk management file, et cetera? Probably everyone has something to say on this. I'm trying to remember what 13485 says about that, but I would imagine it would, it would serve as a it would it would serve as an input to management review. What the exact format of that would be would depend on what your quality system says and how that information is distilled and, and the different levels within the organization at which things are actioned. But at some level, I would expect it to be an input into management review. Yeah, and I love the question, just the fact that you're thinking about, right? It's not about, because so many times we see people, I just have to finish my PCER, and they forget that, right? There's probably an output from that, or there's information that can help the business, you know, go in the right direction. Um, so taking that information and using it in management review, I would certainly think would be best practice. <laughs> One of the ways that um, RQM Plus helps our clients drive like ensuring this full circle approach is taken is actually like a checklist and the conclusions of the PCER, whether it's in the PCER document or outside is, um, you know, up to each manufacturer, but it goes through like the risk benefit assessment, any um, complaint trends, any, you know, high severity complaints or anything of interest that was found during the um, you know, PCER development that might drive further action with the, within the CER or risk management. And so it kind of um, helps drive that discussion. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, here's another question. If we already started PCER cycles internally prior to the certification, would it be acceptable that the PCER submitted to the notified body would have a reporting period starting at a date earlier than the certification date? Uh, so I would I would I would think so because I've I've seen that a lot of times at least on the IVD on the IVD side where manufacturers were were submitting that data so and it we 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 never questioned it so we didn't push back because it's you know it's actually going above what 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 that's what they're required to do so I I don't see I don't see an issue of in that being submitted to be honest I think in fact a lot of notified body reviewers would be very grateful if you're doing it in such a way that you're spacing them out so they're not getting a glut of them because I know that was one of the things that came up on the PCER committee um, and the notified bodies particularly were raising it that okay so we're going to get deluged with PCERs in, in May back then it would have been May 2021 but now we're saying May 2022 and they were trying to compel the, the commission to say that that we could tie the date to the date of issue of the MDD certificate for these legacy devices rather than to the date of application. There was just no mechanism for them to do that. And they kept saying, oh, but the man it says the manufacturer can submit at any time. They don't have to submit at that exact date. And what yeah, they can, but they're not going to. And then all the manufacturers around the table are like, yeah, we're not going to. <laughs> so so I, but I think from the notified body point of view, they'd be very grateful if you break it up a bit um, and it, it also probably increases your chances of success overall so so if your notified body isn't drowning and unable to cope with the level of demand <laughs> once a year every year then they're going to be able to be more effective throughout the rest of the year okay um, so here's a, an, an interesting question kind of around timing as well 
uh, how are companies going to manage compiling their PCER in 90 days from the end of the review period, also including um, safety and performance, the LSR, the PPRR, PMCF, right, all the reports that link together? I just, I've realized I left something out of my previous answer, but then I'll come back. And I should have said, you can submit earlier, but you can't submit later than the required date. So go back to the <laughs> going back to your question. I don't know. Did I don't want to preempted Carlos or Nancy if they wanted to, to to chime in, but I just thought, oh, I should have corrected that bit. No worries. Yeah, I think it that 90 days, right? It's really tough to coordinate all the elements that have to go in the reports and make sure that you're you're looking at the same time frame across the reports. And I think how you kind of thinking about it as modules. So this is a modular approach of, I'm gonna do this packet of data and this information, and then I'm gonna collate it and analyze it together. Um, but being able to do that, the other is if you know, you're having to manually recode your complaints, you're gonna have a really hard time hitting any reasonable time cycle for analysis. So it's, you know, there's some companies that started way back in 2017, like doing the IMDRF codes. For those people that didn't and that are still struggling with manually coding and collating their complaints, it, I think it's really tough. It's worth the investment, I think, up front to get your databases right so you can extract reports that you need so you can have things coded properly to make the analysis quicker. Yeah. I think this is I mean, very, I, well. Oh, sorry, go on. No, 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 no. I was just going to say I agree. I agree with Nancy, and I think a lot of it as well is um, even though we've got the 90-day uh, period after the data collection period to submit to the notified body, I think a lot of the, the activities will actually have to start beforehand of, in preparation for that 90-day period. So, not leaving it to the last minute. So, a lot of the data could actually be be being in a draft stage but starting to be captured much much beforehand of that 90-day period if you don't think that there will be enough time um, to put all of the information that's needed together. And the only thing I was going to add to that is I think this is one of these things we're having really excellent project planning and project management really is worth the investment because it's so so much to do in a relatively short amount of time and ensuring that you have all the information when you need it and it's in a format that's going to be easily inputable, inputable into the next part of the process, um, and and that it's sort of efficiently used, and that things don't get old. Before, you know what I mean? So the whole thing is really tightly aligned. This is where I think you know your project managers are going to be really, really valuable, combined with your, your regulatory experts, of course. Absolutely. Yep. So I think we gave a, a slightly confusing answer maybe beforehand. We had a follow-up question, if that's okay. Um, so it's about um, when uh, submitting for a legacy product. So it says, we're submitting our legacy device for MDR now in April 2022. Is the piece or due one year from now or this May 2022? So it's due this May. If it's a class three or 2B, it's due this May because I'm assuming it was MDD certified before. So it, it was required one year after the date of that, because that's post-market. If, it if it's just being certified now, then it's not due until next April. Yeah. And we're, yeah. we're starting to see that in submissions, that if you submit, you know, I would probably just say in the last two months, if you've submitted 
we're starting to see the notified bodies ask for a copy of the PCER, which they did not do last year. They, everyone kind of was silent on it, or if you submitted it, we weren't get, even getting a lot of comments on it. But yeah. we have had some cases recently where they, they want to see it. You're close enough to that May date. <laughs> Okay. And maybe Celeste, maybe the confusion is from from what something that I've said, where where what Amy was said is is right is for May 2022 for medical devices, but for IVDs because we've got one year, the date of application of the IVDR is one year later. They're not due until May 2023, so next uh, May. So I think that might that might be where the confusion was. That's helpful. But it's Thank for you. IVDs because of okay. the date, the different date of the the date of application of the regulations. Thank you. Hopefully that helps. Um, so an interesting question here. Um, people are always curious about notified body intel. Have you have we seen any difference in PCER expectations depending on the notified body? Uh, so I I I I would say it at this point without without draft guidance. That's without guidance actually for PCERs. That's likely because I I think. Manufacturer uh, notified bodies will be having their own interpretation as to what the requirements of the of, of PSUR are until guidance is actually published. Um, for IVDs, at least it's still very early days because the first uh, PSURs were only uh, due quite recently when the first ever uh, Class C certificate was issued uh, by a notified body. So that was only due, I think, in January this year. Uh, but I'm not sure if the, if Amy or Nancy would have more experience on the MDR side. I haven't seen a, a wide range of them. Nancy, have you? No, and it actually was kind of interesting because we had some clients that submitted PCERs a little bit early just for the, the intent of gathering some feedback and was, was their process well-defined. And the feedback was very quiet. I think notified bodies were hesitant to give a deficiency because they weren't technically due until this May. So... And really, we're just starting to get the first questions and, you know, pretty basic stuff, things that are pretty clear from the regulation that should be included that weren't, or looking for more analysis. I think that's the one probably that I've seen, you know, where, yes, you have all the data, but you didn't really put enough effort into understanding what all that data meant. Um, so maybe one more question and then we're going to switch topics a little bit to IMDRF coding because there seems to be a few questions about that. Um, so this last one here, um, can PCERS point to or reference device instructions for use, assuming the notified body can access this document, or should the PCERS be standalone and include all required language from the IFU, like the device description, intended use, etc.? So what's your experience with that? That's a good point. So I, 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 I'm not entirely sure. So it will, it will really depend on what's uh, in the in the guidance when it's finally published. But I would say that the PSUR will need to stand on its own, and that's because part of them, even though the notified body will have access to IFUs and labeling and whatever, the PSURs will also be uh, sitting at some point in UDMED for competent authorities to revisit if they need to do so. And when I was at BSI, that was one of the, the key things, the key points that we've all, we were always watching for, is that if the PSUR stands on its own without having to dig into other data in the technical documentation. What I can't remember is if, uh, because I don't remember, to be honest, seeing um, 
specific bits of the instructions for use being listed in the PSUR. Um, but yeah, that's a good point. Amy, sorry, I, I, I yeah, interrupted no, you. I was just going, I was just slightly, I was trying to kind of put the question into context and trying to think, well, what bits of the, I, I think because it's not asking for the entire IFU to be included, it really makes more sense to just kind of, as we always used to say in the notify, but they tell the story. And that would mean putting the relevant aspects in context within the piece, sir. And if that's something you could have as a standing thing, then you know maybe that's part of your, your templating. But I think in general, it's best practice not to refer to another document because it may not be in the format. It may not sort of stand, it, it may not make sense kind of out of context, but I was just, you know, kind of trying to get my head around how that might look, <laughs> hence my delayed and not very useful answer. <laughs> All right, so for IMDRF coding then, um, a few questions. Um, is it expected for all complaint data or only for serious incidents? And maybe some, what are some best practices around that in general? Nancy, do you wanna? Oh, go ahead, go on, Nancy. Yeah, personally, I would do it for all complaints because it, you know, at the intake, it, it just makes it more consistent. You, and everybody is using the same coding system and it becomes easier to look for trends and to analyze the data if everybody's speaking a common language. Um, I know for some devices it works really well. It has the right level of granularity. There are other devices where people have struggled a little bit because it doesn't get down into the, the level they used to capture before. Um, so it, there may have to be some, you know, ancillary information if if your device is one that doesn't fit nicely into those buckets okay um so i think a few people asked us that type of question or similar so if there's anything um more details on imdrf coding uh from the audience please let us know um, how about so nice. I just yeah, uh, one comment that I, I, I've just I've watched the uh, webinar recently for, from BSI and Richard Holbrook was at the time talking about AMDRF coding and he mentioned that um, it's only going to get the, the, the manufacturers will need to be very very familiar with AMDRF coding uh, because it's it, it's necessary so the the manufacturing incident reports the MIRs already require AMDRF coding to be to be added and I think it's here to stay. So I think it's a good a good point what Nancy made uh, to you know to make sure that all complaint data and incidents where possible uh, include the same sort of data sets and categorization of the data. Okay. And does this apply for uh, IVDR products as well, the IMDRF coding? It does. It does. It's the same for IVDR uh, and MDR. The issue is that for for IVDR sometimes the codes are not uh, as good as they are for medical devices, but it, it they they also apply. In terms of the description of those codes and how they apply to the different incidents um, that are related to diagnostic type tests. Um, so maybe question for Amy. Uh, do you think it is likely MDCG will publish a PISA report template similar to what happened with the PMCF report template? Yes. I do. Um, there was a template uh, in the draft guidance. There is a template in the draft guidance. There's a lot of guidance around that. And I've asked people who are still involved in that committee, and they say that that template is probably likely to stay. I mean, it's not likely to change. So there, there, there should be a template in there. 
Okay. And any updates on the draft guidance? Well, I heard, <laughs> I heard that. So obviously, we need to go back in time because the the, Udem, uh, the Europa website still says it's going to be published last year. Um, I've heard that the intention is that it should be published. Then I heard it's going to be published by the end of Q1 this year. So we still need to travel back in time. Then I've heard that it's going to be published in May. Um, at which point the guidance is going to be published just exactly when everybody, at least at 2B and 3, um, medical devices needs to have it. So I think there's a lot of, there's so many different complicating factors in that guidance and there's been so much to discuss it. It has been difficult for that working group to finalise it, but we're like just keeping our fingers crossed and, and I'm sort of checking the Europa website practically <laughs> every yeah. other day. <laughs> Amy, and it was actually just recently changed to Q2 2022. So we'll see if that's We'll see. We'll see. I, you know, yeah, I've, I've seen the same as you. 2019, Q1 2022, now Q2 2022. Hopefully, uh, we're, we're going to have something coming out very soon because I think it's very much needed because now we're in the midst of, um, of all of these PSURs actually uh, being reviewed uh, and the, at least under the MDR they are going through notified body reviews and for IVDs that's going to start kicking in very soon so um, we very much need that guidance. Absolutely, absolutely okay. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit back to the um, the details of the piece sir. Um, so um, Nancy maybe you can start with uh, start us off with this. So what is our advice on computing complaint rate and the complaint rate ratio uh, for reusable devices versus capital equipment? And uh, what could you use for failure opportunities during the reporting period, especially um, for capital equipment? Like I, I think what the, the question is asking is that sales data may not be accurate. Um, but what could a company do if they don't have reliable service data, maybe? Yeah, it gets really tough, right? You put an MRI in a facility and it gets used multiple times a day for years and years and years. And so taking the number of complaints, dividing it by the unit sold makes no sense in that case because you could get a number greater than one, right? Um, it, and I think... The idea is you have to start with a rationale, right? How do you think the device is being used? What's the frequency? Um, where is that? And making sure that you just document that rationale. Um, ignoring it or trying not to do a ratio, I've never seen that work. I always, we always get comments and that's a gap and a deficiency that has to be addressed. If you give your rationale and it, it has a reasonable story to it, as Amy calls it, right? Tell your story. Um, we've seen that work pretty well. And it, it, it really is, I hate to say it depends, but it really depends on your device, the frequency at which it's used, the, the useful life of it, how long it's gonna be in the marketplace, um, whether there's diminishing use over time. It, it's make your best case for how that device is used and, and use that as your denominator. Okay. Very helpful. Um, so another question, a few about kind of Udemed and um, this one is asking like, do PCERs become public? 
right? So what are the requirements of um, of how the, when PCERs are uploaded to Udemed, maybe a refresher on what class those are, and then um, who will be able to see them? So the, the PCERs are not publicly available. It's only notified bodies and competent authorities that can access it. Uh, the only uh, documents that will become publicly available, at least under the IVDR, are summary of safety and performances and uh, expert views from the expert panel. But all of the other documentation is, is um, just stays between the notified body, competent authorities, and the manufacturer. And similar for MDR as well, the SSCP, and yeah. And I keep checking you to met every day for an SSCP to get published. <laughs> We're not in there yet. <laughs> you want to see one too. Um, so next question, are are what signatures expected to be shown on the PCER or can we reference the electronic document change control system? And then follow up to that is, are the names, roles of the approvers expected to be specified within the PCER or can we point to the electronic document change control system? I, I don't know. <laughs> Actually, no. Um, good question. Um, I think so. I think the template will tell us if if it needs a, a physical signature, but I don't remember um, a signature being in that template. Yeah, I'm trying so. to remember as well. I don't think so. So I think it's going to come down to what your quality system says, and if your quality system is compliant with 1345 and and the regulations. Yeah, if we borrow from the US, they typically don't require signatures on like submissions, but I have had them where they were concerned that maybe it wasn't signed off, where they come back and say, let me see your signature. And most document control systems have the ability to tack on, right, an electronic signature page that shows who approved on what dates and times, you know, so think about your settings and your doc control if right you can attach that electronic signature to it yeah that would be helpful okay um so another udamed related question for the vigilance module are there any updates when the playground will be available i don't know um, a question like that i always look to nancy <laughs> Yeah, I don't think we've hit any of the rumored dates, so I'm hesitant to say. Um, I keep going know. back and looking to see if anything else has come online, but yeah. No, I think the biggest rumor I had heard was whether or not they would change the definition of what fully functional for Udemed is, in which case making some modules mandatory sooner than after all the modules are available and it's officially notified. Um, so that's my biggest Unimed rumor that I've heard. <laughs> and that's sort of, it's sort of interesting because the, um, the French and the German industry associations have been calling, you know, they've got a joint initiative calling for effectively an extension again to the MDR. And one of the things that they cited in, in their summary was amongst many other things about notified body capacity, the glut of et cetera, et cetera, lack of guidance is, and Udemed's not fully functional. <laughs> and so much of that sort of relies upon Udemed. So it'd be really interesting to see um, where that where that initiative goes. Definitely, yeah. So here's a fun one. Uh, what are some common findings on PCERS that RQM Plus has observed so far? 
we're just starting to get that feedback just from ones that have been submitted recently. So it, it's really basic right now, going back to the not enough analysis of the data. Um, that's one, you know, I, the other thing we're seeing in quality management systems is people are getting their MDR certification there, that they don't have the procedures in place where it's not well-defined. Um, we've heard some questions about how do you um, integrate your risk management and your your post-market data um, so that those are kept on a lifecycle basics. basics. Um, those are probably all we've heard, but I'm really expecting that to kick up after May. <laughs> mm -hmm. Definitely. Okay. That's helpful then. Um, so what is our advice for computing complaint rate and the complaint rate ratio for implantable devices where implant duration varies greatly due to the individual patient benefit risk for re-intervention? They don't ask you easy questions, do they? No, this is great. I love it. <laughs> I'm learning so much today. I think in orthopedics, I've typically, I was typically used to seeing things sort of computed on an annual rate and sort of compared in sales. There was various different ways of approaching it. But and I'm kind of and I'm thinking about things like survivorship, but that's not really complaints. That's like another measure. And then you're getting Captain Meyer curves and stuff like that. So I think my answer is I'm not able to give a satisfactory answer. I'm kind of leaning towards annual rates based on annual sales, but acknowledging that the two don't distinctly align. I'm looking now. Hopefully, Carlos and Nancy have got a better answer than I just gave. Yeah. One thing I have done is kind of do a graph that shows the mean time to failure and looking at that. So you can kind of see, right, there's those early failures. I did the surgery. I had a failure within the first six months or 12 months, right, of the implant. And then I have those later failures. And, and typically you see, you know, almost a bimodal distribution where you see some in the up front where you have an early failure you've got a long length of time where there's very few failures and then they start to go up again as the device you know hits its end of useful life um, category and then there's other implants where it's a little more difficult i think like spine where the goal is just to get bone fusion and then the device really isn't functioning anymore so you know, how do you define a failure at that point? Is it when it requires surgical intervention? Is it, so those become a little more difficult because they're not really providing the device function after the bone has fused. Okay. Um, so then here's maybe a clarifying question again about timing. It seems a lot of questions around timing as we get closer to the to the date. Um, so if device is still in MDD and it's class 2B, when is the first piece or due? Next month. Easy um, answer. Yeah, very quick. Uh, how critical... Um, is it to not have a template for use with legacy piecers? I'm not totally sure I understand that question. So if that person wants to ask a follow-up, if this answer isn't good, that's fine. Um, but I think it's just asking maybe about how critical is it to have a template in general? I think once the guidance is issued, it would be very advisable to use exactly the template 
that is in the guidance, modifying it as little as possible and certainly not leaving out any fields. You can maybe add some fields possibly, but don't take anything out. Um, in the absence of any guidance, I think I would use, um, I, I would uh, I would follow the, 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 the format, of, you know, just follow the clauses of, of the MDR and provide kind of contextual information around that so it makes sense. Um, and if you've had, if you're like a member of MedTech Europe, for example, and you've had a sneak preview of the template, it probably makes sense to just go ahead and use that anyway, because I, I gather it's not likely to change. Very helpful. Thank you. Um, so then how far is it like, so here's another question. We've, we've had a lot of questions about referencing other documentation. And so this is kind of along that same vein. Uh, kind of how far is it acceptable to reference data in the PSER? And so maybe that could mean like information from the CER or the IFU, or that could also be taken as reference data as in um, the complaint data and the trends and that kind of thing. But I'm not sure then where it would be available for the notified body review. So um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I think, again, you need to at least summarize it in a way that provides contextual sense, because if you think about it as being a tool for competent authorities, and if they're not able to access those source reports, it's not going to make a lot of sense standing alone. So I think it's a question of getting the balance right between completely reproducing every report and just dumping it in versus summarizing the data in a way that makes sense in the context of what you're trying to show in terms of you know, what evidence is there for the device, what new vigilance issues are there. Has there been, and I think state of the art is still in there, like had there been vigilance issues that in the state of the art that would be relevant to your device that would affect your overall benefit risk conclusions and so on. And to summarize that in a way that kind of makes sense in a standalone fashion. Okay. Yeah, and I'd other? agree, Amy, as well. Just uh, so because we, I think we need to think about what's the, the objective of the PSUR, which is to present comprehensive uh, and critical analysis of the post-market surveillance data. So if that the, the if, if those references are necessary for a notified body reviewer or a competent authority to make an assessment as to the validity of the data, then it, the PSUR needs to stand uh, on its own because it, it will need to demonstrate that um, the device achieves the intended benefits and risks uh, that are intended for the device. So I think referencing data and whether if the, if the data is critical to make that assessment on the device, I don't think that would be appropriate. I think the PSUR will need to stand on its own. Yeah, but I think it also goes to the level of detail you put in the PSUR. So yeah. if you had 5,000 complaints that your label was the wrong color, right? You don't yeah. need to include all 5,000 complaint records that you know, said, oh, the label was the wrong color today. <laughs> I think you need meaningful summary data. You don't want all the raw data because that's not, I mean, that's kind of the the opposite of the objective. You've got a mountain of data that hasn't been sort of sifted through or analyzed in any way, then it's not kind of performing the intended purpose of that. So it's more about like, consider what is the data, what's the intent, and then is it more appropriate to summarize versus have it the full thing? Okay. Yeah, I think you know, as a, as a notified body reviewer, and this is going back to, to a CER or the, or even just like a, a post-market surveillance report, your heart would sink when you just see reams and reams, rows and rows and rows and rows without any kind of grouping or categorization or explanation. And I'm thinking like, I, I don't actually care about this list. I want to know about the trends. I want to know about what you did about it and, and how why you did things the way you did. I don't 
but it is i guess it's quite tempting just to dump the raw data in because it's nice and chunky and it looks like a lot of work very interesting um so <laughs> Yeah, um, here's an interesting question as well. Um, is it required to provide a section summarizing all design changes such as ECOs, ECNs that are occurring in their status in the PSER? I was looking at Carlos and he looked like he wanted to answer, but now he's... <laughs> I think again, my gut take on this would be, just as we've been sort of saying previously, you don't want, every, I, I think, you don't want every single design change, but you definitely would want a design change that was triggered by a vigilance, like a, you know, trending. So if you were systemically seeing a problem and you change the design to address that problem, I think that probably should be incorporated in there. But if it, and it might be that even if it's like an improvement thing, so it's not directly related to an issue, but it's something that could affect the conclusions that you draw you might want to make reference to it but if it's you know like a little bit of very small changes like we changed the color blue or we i don't know added a, a, a left symbol on it or, or whatever it might be then that's probably and as we, in the absence of guidance all of this is just kind of speculation but i think that's probably would be overkill okay nancy what are your thoughts yeah, and then I think the other is make sure your procedure says that, right? That your procedure outlines which change notifications you're gonna include and why, and the rationale for that. Because you wanna be able to defend, you know, that these I included because they met this criteria that I established up front. And these I excluded because Damie's point, it, it changed the color, it didn't impact biocompatibility, I don't have to include it. Um, the other thing that drives me nuts is, right, we'll see the data and we'll see a big change or shift. And then, you know, but there's no explanation somewhere in it. And then you go back and you tie it to, oh yeah, well, we had this problem in manufacturing or we had this problem with the design and we changed it. Like if you're seeing those shifts in your data, you know, it's worth digging in and figuring out what caused it and listing those for sure in that section. Okay. Thank you. Um, so maybe this question, I think we probably can provide in the um, follow-up materials for the session, because uh, I'm sure we have something on this, but the question is about, is there a process flow chart that shows the inputs and outputs of the CER, CEP, the literature search, protocol and report, the PSER, SSCP, and risk management file? I feel like we have a webinar with that in there somewhere. Yeah, I thought we have a really lovely slide on that showing just, you know, to kind of blow people's minds as to how complicated it is. I think John Gimble and Jay Cuddy actually did a webinar not too long ago on that. And I'm sure we okay. could put that link out because um, it shows all the different inputs and outputs and flow and sequencing and process steps. Very good. Yep, so we'll provide that after the show, um, then a process flowchart. Thank you. I've, I figured we had to have something. Um, so here's, you know, earlier on in the show, we talked about um, combining products and, you know, how that could be done reasonably or, you know, from 
efficiency, but also like the device itself perspective and what would make sense. So here's a question, um, combining products under the piecer. So here's an example. You have one product which has its own piecer, then this product stays the same, but a claim to it was added. So the intended use changes a bit, but it's still the same product. Um, can we combine these two under one piecer or does it need a separate piecer? You do ask good questions. I think what I would probably do, going out on the limb here, is put it in the same piecer, but explain when the change was made and why, and if you see any impact on trending or whatever as a result of that. That would be my that would be my inclination. I could be wrong, but that's where that's where I would go with it, I think. Yeah, I think I would too. It's the same device. <laughs> Right. And so some of those failure modes you would expect to be the same. Yeah, I'd agree. And I think the only thing to take into account is then the, the data collection period and to make sure that you're 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 tackling that for both devices, uh, because then you need to plan very carefully how you're going to be what your data collection period is and how you're going to meet the, the one or two year um, time frames for submission. But yeah, I think it's possible to, to combine it. Um, then here's a good question on data analysis. Going back to that topic, um, how much detail of data analysis uh, used to support PCER conclusions should be provided in the PCER? For example, should manufacturers be including a summary of all CAPAs, like issue, root cause, risk, summary actions implemented, et cetera, um, or just simply provide a statement that issues investigated in CAPAs did or did not impact safety benefit determination? So kind of in general how much like detail versus summary um should be presented it's one of these how how long is a piece of string type questions you know we, we made the joke that i don't say it depends anymore but we've said it a few times on this webinar i feel like i wish i had my sign that i could hold up and say it depends um yeah i feel like a complete failure in answering that question <laughs> What about you? What about Carlos and Nancy? What do you think? Yeah, so I, th I think it. it um, I think it, I think it's it it it's a, it depends. So I don't think a general statement to say um, we've we've had complaint we have we've we've, we've we've had complaints we've had couples and therefore everything is fine would would stand on its own. So I think we would need a little bit more detail than that. So talking about what sort of complaints there were, what actions have taken place but more on a summary level rather than describing each individual complaint and each individual kappa, but potentially grouping them in categories of uh, these are my device failures because I had a false positive or a false negative uh, or whatever in an IVD. But I, I think it's, it it needs to be uh, it I think it goes back to the comments we've made earlier. So the 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 PSUR will need to stand on its own. So uh, a notified body looking at it would need to make sense of the data that's being presented to be able to make a conclusion on the validity of that PSUR. Yeah, I, I think I've seen extremes. Right, I've seen one extreme that I only where. They only included campus that led to a field safety corrective action. So I would call that you know one extreme the other extreme i've seen is an attached report with you know 82 kappas that were related to this product because they pulled it they just extracted it from their kappa system um you know i think there's probably a balance that says you know maybe there were 82 there were 15 related to manufacturing there were 20 related to this you know 
again, going back to that summary and impact assessment. Okay. Um, so I did want to pause to let the audience know that Steve did post the uh, link to the webinar that John and Jay uh, gave on um, showing the linkages between all the MDR and IBDR uh, documentation. So that's very helpful if you want to look um, in the in the chat um, of the webinar. And then, um, Carlos, there was a request. Um, could you repeat the definition you gave of a PCER? And then yes. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember what definition I gave of a PCR. So, but basically, a PCR is to for, is uh, is used for a manufacturer to understand what if the post market surveillance confirms the, the 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 benefit risk ratios of a particular device. So that's the intent. So it's 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 that it's part of that continuous reassessment of the risk benefit profile of the device so that notified bodies and competent authorities can justify that there's no new emerging risks and that the device is still um, um, performs according to the intended purpose. But this is my definition of a PSUR, it's not an official definition. <laughs> if you want an official definition, you would need to look at the, uh, the PSUR guidance when that comes out, because I'm sure it will be, the, the scope of what's described under the PSUR will be, will be defined in there. Excellent, thank you. But I think that's a, that's a great definition to kind of help us all wrap our heads around what's expected. Yeah. So. Um, okay, so this will be the last question and then we'll turn it back to Steve uh, to close us out. Um, but this question is again about the data. How far back into complaint database do you go for analysis? The last year or can we provide recommendation? So I think if I'm understanding the question correctly, um, I think the guidance will give a recommended time frame. I think the last version we saw was suggesting a sort of four-year rolling sort of uh, time frame. So I guess if you if you have your pieces do do annually, then you'd be collecting data for that last year, but you'd be keeping the previous three years before that in there and analyzing it in context of that four-year running um, target. And if you had a two A device or um, whichever classifications of IBDs are on the two-year schedule instead, then you would be doing that on a, you know, you'd be having a two-year, a four-year chunk and every two years you'd be updating and moving that time frame along. So I hope I understood that question correctly. They've, Amy, they've made it easier for IVDs. It's just one year for both classes C and D. There's okay. no two years involved. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but that, is that a one-year, like, one-year trending period? That's, but like, maybe the question is coming from, and I, I guess I've had clients ask me this before, is you know it's just one year of trends but then how do i sh show you know that how has that trend died down or whatever like ultimately the piecer should show four to five years of data but you have that one year that's your kind of trending period or your reporting period yeah so i think what, they do want it to be in the context of that for full four or five year period so you could be noticing a trend even over that longer period and that one year is your new data that you've collected that new data may be demonstrating a trend in itself as compared to the previous three or four years, or it might be showing variations in the system as a whole. So I think you probably need it to look at it from, from both perspectives. So in a PSER, we think that it should be more than one year of data presented. 
So oh, I think, yeah. I think less. I think it will depend on what comes out of the guidance. But that was our. We were under the impression uh, that it was going to be four years. But I've also heard about the the data that was going to be is submitted in the PSUR being data. So if you if you think that the on your second PSUR would be covering data from your last PSUR, so it would be in one year chunks. So to be honest, I'm not entirely sure what what is actually going to make it to the final the final guidance. But last I've heard was the same as as I mean about the, the that four year period collection period. And if you put it in the context of when you know sort of um, notified bodies are looking at complaints and vigilance and PMS reports in, under the directives, they would be typically looking at a period that's equivalent to the duration of the certificate, which was typically five years. So even, you know, under the directives, they were normally looking for five years, although in certain circumstances they could they could accept less. And I think that's probably where that four year, I'm thinking that's where that four years come from, because it's like you've got your one year of analysis, most recent, plus the preceding four years. I'm not quite sure about that. We'll have to wait and see what the guidance ultimately says. Yeah, we see a lot of clients doing five years as a starting point in the absence of a guidance and, and the need to get these done. I will say it gets trickier because a lot of people change their database and the way they code complaints at some point along the MDR journey. So having to go back into legacy data and convert it so that I can combine it and merge it with more recent data has been a challenge. Okay. Um, some interesting feedback from the audience is that um, a manufacturer listening has said that BSI required them to have five years. So that's, just that, that's consistent with what they required under the directives typically. So that doesn't okay. surprise me. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I think um, we still didn't get to all the questions. So either we'll have a number three on PCERS <laughs> or follow up. Um, uh, with questions to everyone. So thank you. Uh, this was very fun. And I'll also like to welcome Archivon Plus's newest consultant, Nancy's cat, who's now a PCER expert. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, for all of our PCER needs here to help. Um, so back to you, Steve. Thanks, Celeste. These shows are somehow getting more fun. How is this happening? Um, thanks so much, everyone, uh, for joining us today uh, for all the questions. We'll follow up with an email of the recording by tomorrow. And as always, we'll publish this episode to our Device Advice podcast by early next week. Uh, our next RQM Plus live show will be on May 5th, Implications of FDA Adopting ISO 1345 and How to Prepare. Uh, the director of our global audit practice will be on that one, so please bring your questions and join us. Uh, even sooner than that, next week on Tuesday, April 26th, is our second webinar of the year an intuitive approach to quantifying the benefit-risk ratio. So this is a super detailed, deep dive. If you have any interest at all in this topic, we strongly encourage you to register. Um, and if you can't make it at the time on Tuesday or and are still interested in this topic, we encourage you to register anyway so you're included when we distribute the recording and slides. So that's it for number 53. Uh, we hope to see you at next week's webinar or next week's live show in two weeks. If neither of those things interest you, be sure to visit our Knowledge Center for something else that hopefully will. So thanks all. Have a great rest of your day.